Hello, and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for the third part of our look at Series 9, wherein we'll be looking at Face the Raven, Heaven Sent, and Hell Bent, which is not just an exciting prospect, three very exciting prospects. So, let's jump right on in with Face the Raven. Whatever happens next... Wherever she is sending you, I know what you're capable of. You don't be a warrior. Promise me. Be a doctor. What's the point of being a doctor if I can't cure? Heal yourself. You have to. You can't let this turn you into a monster, so... I'm not asking you for a promise. I'm giving you an order. You will not insult my memory. There will be no revenge. I will die, and no one else here or anywhere will suffer. What about me? If there was something I could do about that, I would. Guess we're both just going to have to be brave. Let's play a little game of pretend. Imagine you're Sarah Dollard in, like late 2014, early 2015, whenever it was. Uh, you've submitted, like, a an idea that you've been batting around uh, with the BBC to Doctor Who for an episode centred around a trap street, which is a really cool, really interesting, very Doctor Who idea. I'll talk more about that in a bit, actually. And then one day you're talking to Stephen Moffat, and he's like, oh, Sarah, it's a great idea. We love it. <laughs> uh, but I just wonder if you could put a few more things in for us. We need you to... The Trap Street thing is great, but we need to tie it in with the character of me. You know, this really complicated relationship with the Doctor that she's got going. We need to reintroduce the audience to that. Oh, and if you could kill Clara as well, that'd be great. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you could have a draft by Friday, that'd be great. So I, I assume the, uh, the, the image of that conversation is now perfectly conjured up for you. I apologise <laughs> to the people of Scotland. Um... Oh no, <laughs> they've come for me already. <laughs> but yeah. Justice will be swift and merciless. <laughs> Clearly. So there's this idea in uh, Doctor Who fandom and in Doctor Who criticism, a concept called the Nightmare Brief, which is essentially uh, an episode that kind of has to cram a load of things in, um, like a, maybe a companion departure or arrival, something like that. Uh, along with an actual plot. I think the most infamous example is um, Planet of Fire, which has to handle like a couple of companion departures and a companion arrival and a possible send-off for the Master and all kinds of stuff. And usually, when you're looking at an episode like that, if it manages to be good, enjoyable, then that's a success. Face the Raven manages to be great, despite being like seemingly a nightmare brief in itself. For a first-time writer as well. Uh, first-time writer on Doctor Who, obviously. And there's a number of reasons why, but I want to start with the Trap Street itself, which, as I say, I think is a beautifully, quintessentially Doctor Who idea. The notion of... Uh, it's just this little interesting bit of historical trivia, cartographical trivia, if you like, that um, can sort of expands into literally a whole world, really. So... Apart from just being an interesting idea, 
it fits in very well with that kind of fairy tale aesthetic of um, Moffat, who it is in its own way a kind of like a, a portal to fairy, essentially hidden in the everyday world. And it's this it's this notion of like another world that is hidden in a place you go by every day. That mixture of the fantastical and the mundane that I think is key to this is something I think we talked about quite a bit in series one. But it's something that I think is key to a lot of uh, really good Doctor Who. And then even once you get into the Trap Street itself, it's this really interesting place. It's like, it's kind of, it's simultaneously a refuse, a re- refuse? Refuge. But also a ghetto in some ways. Like the the inhabitants, they're safe there, but they're also trapped there. Which is something that kind of, towards the end of the episode, becomes pr- particularly clear when we have the notion that they might be outed, as it were. So that's kind of, that's an interesting place to be, an interesting place to spend an episode, particularly as it kind of relates to the Doctor himself, whose prejudices are quite apparent in a place like this. He refers to the um, the residents as uh, like these creatures and things like that. There's a kind of, I don't want to say dehumanizing because they're not human, but there's a, there's a sense in which his past experiences with these various alien races have kind of as we've seen in some other episodes as well, sort of blinded him to their potential. Potential. Now, that in itself is interesting as well because the Trap Street is overseen by me, who is essentially a kind of Dr. Analogue in various respects, starting with the fact that she's an immortal and, like, the kind of comparisons between their worldviews and um, ways of being have already been poured over quite a bit in The Woman Who Lived. But here, we get some other kind of reflections on that. Like, for one thing, there's the the lurkworms, which act as a sort of perception filter. So the Trap Street is, is kind of like a TARDIS in itself. You know, it's this thing that gets passed over and appears to be something... Well, actually, it's the residents who appear to be something else. But there's still that kind of comparison there. Uh, even the fact that it is this otherworldly portal, which is the thing that that the TARDIS itself is, a kind of door between worlds, uh, which is something I've talked about again, I think, a bit on this podcast before. So all of that uh, really interesting stuff, really interesting kind of set of imagery going on throughout this this story, this kind of cracked mirror for the Doctor, just this, this notion of a kind of alien refugee camp, essentially, this strange place that's seeped in both compassion with a kind of almost enforced solidarity and community, but also prejudice ruled over by this, well, overseen, shall we say, by this kind of Dr. Analog. And it also makes for an interesting reflection on me herself and on the kind of place that this needs to be because we see this strange, like weirdly authoritarian system of justice and of judgment that they have that I'm sure you're going to talk quite a bit more about Jacob (laughs) Uh, which is something that kind of I think it's it makes for an interesting sort of like wrinkle in how we view this place and how we view me because it seems there's something kind of quite queasy about it especially when the queasy is a word I'm using a lot in these podcasts for some reason especially the first time we see it when it's the guy who stole medical supplies for his wife and it's like, well, there's no mitigation there. You're, you're going to die. That's that's how it is. Bye. And he like runs away and like dies afraid, essentially. 
uh, which obviously is a, a mirror and a contrast for Clara's own deaths. Death, rather. Which, speaking of, obviously Clara's death is the, like, the heart of this episode, the emotional heart, and makes for a series of just superb scenes. First in the kind of extended, her extended sort of goodbye to the Doctor when she realises what's going to happen, and then in the the actual scene of her death. And I mean, there's a lot to be said about that, but I think the the thing that I want to at least briefly concentrate on here is the notion of the kind of sacrificial companion which is something that we've seen a few times in Doctor Who in a few different places like there's the the relatively early possible companions depending on how you look at them of Katarina and Sarah Kingdom who like get just murdered just killed off quite brutally by the show itself in the Daleks master plan then there's Adric of course, our dear old friend Adric, who, I'll save this discussion for whenever we get to Earthshock, but who gets really cynically killed off in a sort of facsimile of drama. But I think the more interesting comparison is Donna. Because I think Clara's exit, and particularly both here and in Hellbent, does form a kind of strange mirror of what happens to Donna. Not just in Journey's End, which of course we'll get to, but in Turn Left as well. Uh, I had actually kind of... This only occurred to me earlier today because the... As luck would have it, the Doctor Who official YouTube channel, which uh, according to Peter Capaldi you should subscribe to, and just uploaded the scene where Donna essentially chooses to die to go back and like save the Doctor. So that is a sacrifice, a self-sacrifice that is motivated by the fact that the Doctor is so wonderful and must be saved. Clara chooses to die. Well, she doesn't choose to die. She chooses to kind of take on this extremely reckless plan which leads to her death. But she chooses that as a form of sacrifice, partly as a clever plan, but also inherent within it, as well as a possible death wish, which she does kind of touch on herself. There is this notion of just sacrificing yourself for someone else. Which is something she clearly learned from the Doctor. The Doctor who did this, basically exactly this, in Caves of Androzani. And in, for all my complicated feelings about at the end of time. And various other times who have sacrificed themselves to protect individuals close to them and people they barely knew. And who in this episode thinks nothing of giving up his TARDIS key... To free the the woman, uh, Anna, who is in suspended animation. So, in what could have been her final moments, we see Clara yet again taking on this role as a kind of pseudo-doctor and doctor analogue. And if that had been the end of her story, then I think, in some ways, it looks like a fitting ending. But it's not. Because that ending... And here I'm talking to all the people who think Clara should have stayed dead. That ending would mean she tried to be the Doctor and died for it. And there's an awful lot wrong with that picture. Which I hope I don't need to go into too much. Particularly given the, at this point, still very gendered dynamic of the Doctor and Companion. But yeah, that's my kind of, I suppose, my sort of sketched out thoughts on the vague shape of this episode. Bethan, what about you? 
Yeah, so no surprises. I also think this is a great episode. I, I, I also really, I think the idea of Trap Street is so well sort of outlined because of the amount of other stuff that has to happen in this in this episode in, in a relatively sort of short amount of time. But I really like how we as the viewer and sort of, well, we as the viewer see through the eyes of Riggsy, but also through the Doctor. So we don't always know what the aliens who are living on Trap Street, what their like actual identity looks like, which I think is really mm-hmm. clever. Because obviously we have an idea, we know that there's, I think they show Santara and Jadun, Cyberman, but because we never find out, and obviously the two Janus, Januses, but because we never find out exactly who everybody is, I think that it stops us from judging their actions based on our preconceptions that we have about certain species in Doctor Who. Mm. Like, I don't think we ever see the couple where the man gets killed. I don't think we ever see them not in their sort of human disguises. So we have no idea how they might look in their sort of real forms and... They could be any like of the Doctor's enemies or allies over the course of the whole show, which I think is really interesting and works as a really excellent complement to the Zygon episodes that we get this series. Hmm. And also to kind of contrast a different way of existing as an alien on Earth, because I think me even makes the comparison. She says, are they better off in here or out there like the Zygons? Hmm. As in in here, even though they're somewhat taking on a human appearance, they're doing so in a space where their alien identity is known to everybody else there. So it's kind of like, how can they find their authenticity? So I thought that was really interesting. And also because it's kind of like another hybrid identity mm. because and, and a hybrid identity that we experience them as, as viewers because we don't know what they quote really look like I do have some stuff to say about me in this episode but I'm actually gonna save that for Hellbent because I have an Mm. overarching point to make about her narrative but I also wanted to talk about Riggsy because Mm. I think I've got the actor's actor's name is Joven Wade and I think he does I wanted to specifically mention him because I think he does a really really good performance Mm. in this episode and quite subtly but I think you really get his dilemma when he feels that he is going to die you really feel for him but also there's a really interesting contrast between him and Clara because Riggsy is there as kind of a more ordinary person's perspective on or or an outsider's perspective on what Clara and the Doctor's dynamic and what their behaviour is like. I think there Mm. are a number of moments where we see him sort of reacting. There's the moment where Clara's like dangling out of the TARDIS and whooping and enjoying herself and Riggsy's just kind of concerned, basically. Mm. And he's saying like she enjoyed that way too much and the Doctor says, tell me about it, it's an ongoing problem, which in any other episode, basically, would just be like a fun little, ooh. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of they're so kooky, but because, uh, especially on a rewatch, it's just kind of, oh, yeah, she's kind of doing a lot of risk-taking behaviour because the Doctor's taught her to, isn't she? And also, 
there's the interaction with between Clara and Riggsy when he gives her the tattoo, which I found to be quite uncomfortable because I think I did really feel like she was kind of emotionally manipulating him. That was how it kind of came across by kind of like persuading, forcing his hand a little bit, even though he doesn't really want to give her the tattoo Mm. because he's worried about her. (laughs) And I don't know, she kind of, because he makes the point of like, oh, shall we tell the doctor, maybe? And yeah, I just, I thought that was kind of interesting because I thought it was showing the extent to which Clara will go and relatedly the doctor will go because of his dynamic with Clara to kind of take these risks. Hmm. And she's kind of doing it without this conception that Riggsy has of the fragility of mortality which I think is what is really like sensitively got across by his reactions to certain things. And I thought it was really good to have him there as a kind of third member of the squad for that reason. I also wanted to talk about Clara's death in this episode. I actually used to be of the opinion that she should have died in this episode. Looking back, I can't, I'm not really sure why. I think it was just because I was used to the fact of people dying and then coming back again, a la Mm. Rory. And so I was like, oh yeah, so there's still no consequences. But I feel very differently about that now. And I really like how she gets a sort of doctor-ish goodbye speech, which kind of ties into some ideas I'm going to talk about in Heaven Sent and Hellbent about the doctor being a kind of way of existence rather than a personal identity. Mm-hmm. And she also dies in the regeneration pose, which is also a crucifixion pose. Mm. Which, when it's the Doctor, it's kind of a little bit... I don't know. I mean, he's dying... The Doctor dies and is resurrected in a regeneration. But also, it's a bit strange to have the compar- the same poses with a crucifixion because it's like... It's a bit self-aggrandizing and also the Doctor can just come back. Whereas the point of a crucifixion of that like biblical resonance is that Jesus, not to compare Clara to Jesus, but I am doing so, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let's commit. <laughs> um, it's being fully human and fully divine. And I think what we see in Clara is just that she is fully human. So she has to face like death with all of its consequences and finality, which the Doctor never really does. And so that's where there's kind of like the tragedy of her as this kind of, perfect encapsulation of what the doctor can be and what time lords can be Mm. but she doesn't have the blessing or perhaps the burden as we will see of an unlimited lifespan Mm. yeah i might bring up some more stuff later but that's kind of my opening remark yeah yeah no i think that's really interesting and actually i i like your your point about the um the trap street residence something that hadn't really occurred to me before but like I think it's an interesting way that the the series can get past the idea of monsters, and mm. uh, which is something that we see it grappling with quite a bit in this period, actually. But like, by withholding the information of like what they are or what they were, if you prefer, mm. it kind of means that we're not seeing them with any preconceptions of like, oh, Santarans are like this, Jadoon are like this, whatever. Mm. It's making us see them as at least akin to humans. I mean, the most interesting one for me in that respect is the Cyberman that's mm. there because mm. 
the way that we are that we typically see Cybermen in Doctor Who is kind of without without the possibility or option on their part to live a life that isn't being in a force of Cybermen going around deleting things. And so I enjoyed the challenge, the sort of implicit challenge to the viewer on placing a Cyberman in that context mm. of how we feel about our perceptions of these like monsters mm. as having no kind of personal agency or personality and just being part of a sort of faceless horde. Mm. And also, I guess it opens up the possibility that some monsters that we see of as as monstrous and beyond kind of any way of existing in a sort of normal society, maybe that's not actually the case, which I think is really interesting. And it's something I'd love to see explored more in Doctor Who. But I think that the fact that it, even the fact that it's done so subtly here, it kind of works even better for that. The fact that it's not a laboured point, it's just Mm. a sort of momentary glimpse into a possible different way of looking at things. Mm. I guess in hindsight, it's also a um, potential setup for Bill. Oh. Anyway, uh, before we get into talking about Bill too much, um, Jacob. Yeah, this is a fantastic episode. I really, really want Sarah Dollard to come back um, mm. and mm. write more episodes. Like Of the two episodes we've had, we've had Thin Ice and we've had this, and they've both been great. I think she's one of the most interesting kind of new writers on the show that we've mm-hmm. seen. And it was kind of one big disappointment of, you know, kind of the Chibalera's complete clearing out of all the previous team is that people mm. like Sarah Dollard haven't come back. Now, I don't know if she was asked, but I suspect mm. not because it seemed like they just wanted a fresh start. But yeah, no, like it's it's a great episode. It's 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 very imaginative, and it meshes really well with the central themes of the series. And I think it's got a really... It handles this like very striking imagery really well, I think. That both anticipates the kind of tragic arc of the story, but also, yeah, kind of advances the themes that we've seen this series. So, you know, you get that image of the raven, the central image of the raven, which is obviously an image of death. And clearly, you know kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen to Clara, but is also very much part of how she will face that death as well. Uh, and then there's the the, the two uh, Janices, you know, with the two faces, one looking to the future, the other to the past. So again, it's that sense of another binary being broken down mm-hmm. uh, into the, um, you know, by being merged into this one character, the seeing the future and the past. And I, I love the idea of the trap street. I think I think the trap street's just great. Like I, the first time I watched it, I uh, as well. Like I, that that was really striking. And I think also it does the work of, again, those collapsing binaries in the sense that it's a liminal space. You know, it's an in between space. Mm. But it also plays into those kind of themes that you were touching upon. That this is a street of refugees. You know, and these are people who are not necessarily included or are hidden, you know, or, or their experiences aren't really taken into account, I suppose, or they might be, like, lacking particular rights. I think the the final scenes between the Doctor and Clara are really, really well done. The acting is just superb. I mean, 
I love the way it's handled, you know, Jenna Coleman's, like, Clara's insistence upon the Doctor not taking revenge. Mm. Also, the way Capaldi... I mean, we've said about Capaldi's tonal changes before. The way he handles, you know, moving from being kind of completely heartbroken and despairing to, like, that fury at Mare Me is great. And and honestly, like, Capaldi is actually scary in those scenes. Like, it's not... Mm. You know, it's... Um, like, when he threatens to rain hell on her for the rest of time and all that kind of thing. Um, it's yeah, it's really brilliant. The, the it's re- it's really good writing combined with really fantastic acting as well. But I think I think another point is, I guess thinking about the themes throughout the series more as a whole. Elizabeth Sandifer has kind of talked about this before. This idea of the aliens on the street being refugees as something that's very relevant to when the episode was broadcast because obviously we're under the coalition government where around the time of the rise of uh, UKIP and mm. so on. And so there is a big debate about immigration and refugees and one that is, mm. well, frankly, nasty. Like, it's a it's a really mm. nasty debate um, and it's extremely xenophobic. So I think, yeah, go, like, looking at this kind of liminal space where these refugees are is quite an important thing to do at the time. And also it resonates really nicely, like you were saying, with the with the Zygon episode. But I think it also plays into what I was talking about in uh, in our previous episode, which is this idea of the state of exception. Uh, you know, so like to recap, you know, the the sense of a state of exception being, you know, in a state of emergency when law is suspended, which then allows governments to do, you know, all kinds of terrible things that they may not ordinarily be able to and allows them to walk over people's rights and, and essentially break the law. And I think really this all comes together in Mare Me because Mare Me, as you were saying, is you know, sort of invested with the power of life and death over the whole street, really, because she has control of this, this quantum shade. And we see a kind of a, a very uncompromising and merciless justice system, quotation marks, that, yeah, like, like you said, has a man sentenced to death for stealing medical rations to save his wife or partner, whatever. And I think, again, though that focus on an extremely repressive and aggressive set of laws and rules is very relevant for the Cameron government, which, you know, was imposing, like, from 2011 particularly onwards extremely repressive trade union legislation. I mean, we already had the strongest trade union uh, laws in the world in terms of repressing trade unions, but they added even more. And then, of course, there was the riots in 2011, mm. um, you know, where we had we had things like um, laws being implemented to do with cutting off benefits and housing, uh, if anyone you know who was involved in the riots was found to be in receipt of benefits or in a council house, which again is quite frankly just trampling over people's basic rights, and obviously the anti-terror legislation which had been going on, you know, quite a long time before that. And the interesting thing is here that, in a similar way, the mayor is, uh, you know, the mayor's. In in a similar way to the Cameron government saying, you know, we have to do these things in order to protect our our liberties and our society and all the rest of it. Uh, Mayor Meese is a similar thing. You know, she says our laws keep us safe. 
that's the kind of justification she gives for, you know, killing this poor man who's just trying to get his partner the medical rations that they need to survive. Yeah, so it's it's like she's doing this stuff and she's she's got these very, you know, this repressive sort of rule in order to try and maintain order effectively. But Riggsy's death sentence is obviously outside of those laws um, because mm. he's not actually done anything wrong and she knows it. But she does it because uh, she's, you know, cut a deal with the Time Lords to protect the street, uh, essentially. So again, you get this idea of the state of exception, suspending the laws in order to protect, you know, because you, you know, justifying it because there is some kind of necessity or emergency. And I think it's interesting that they brought Riggsy back to do this because obviously in Flatline, he's doing community service for graffiti, Mm. you know, so it very much ties into the real world context of what is happening. But I think there's a wider point which resonates throughout the series as a whole, which is that the state of exception, which the series is kind of interrogating and problematizing and dissecting, is also an interrogation of the Doctor's own state of exception. Because we see throughout this season that he breaks he breaks his own rules. You know, so we have it with the Fisher King, where he says that he's the only Time Lord, so he can do effectively what he wants. He tries to break the rules. He can't, to some degree, because he's within constraints, the TARDIS prevents him. And he also says he's willing to bend the rules because the Fisher King violated something more important than time, broke the rules of life itself, which incidentally is something that the Doctor is going to do in Hellbent mm. um, by bringing back And then Carl. the girl who died. And the girl who died, yeah. And that, well, yeah, that was the other thing that I was coming on to because, um, yeah, in The Girl Who Died, he says, you know, there's a whole moment which is brilliant where he's kind of lamenting the, all these people who've, who've died and he's so tired of it and he says you know there's nothing I can't do but then he says he can't because of ripples tidal waves rules and then of course he breaks that rule and in breaking that rule a shielder lives you know becomes me and will become mayor me and the events of this episode happen so in effect the doctor's you know breaking of his own rules the doctor's state of exception because he's so powerful that he you know effectively makes the laws and can choose when to suspend them is what leads to clara's death hmm. which i think is really interesting and it's the kind of it's the kind of unsettling of the doctor's character that i think is really valuable and i really like in the season as a whole the exploration of that really will continue that theme will continue in Hellbent in particular. I think that's really where it comes. It culminates. I think just a point on the uh, as a final thing on the um, the death, Clara's death, and kind of the controversy around it because obviously she's she will be brought back. I uh, I was the same as Beth and I when I first watched it. I wasn't wasn't keen because I, I you know I liked the way it was done in Face the Raven. I hadn't really thought about the other implications of it, which obviously I have now. And again, as you were saying, I was so fed up with seeing people die and then be brought back over and over again, as had happened in 
the previous few seasons that I, yeah, I felt it lost its power. And but again, as I've said before, when we've looked at other episodes, I think watching this series in isolation is is much better. And I think bringing Clara back, as we'll talk about later on makes much more sense thematically. It makes much more sense with both her character and the Doctor's character. Um, And crucially, I think, you're right, it does unsettle and problematise the kind of power imbalance that that traditionally is between Doctor and Companion. Hmm. So, yeah, fantastic episode. (laughs) Yep, (laughs) that's the consensus. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to add on that. I'm I'm trying to figure out... There's. I feel like there's something going on with um the with Rigsy and well I guess with uh with everyone who is kind of marked with the the countdown tattoo mm-hmm. uh, but particularly with Rigsy because he moves between that world the world of the trap street and the like normal human world I feel like there's something going on there in terms of liminality as well mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the um uh, I mean, did you talk about the state of exemption? I'm thinking about. Uh, I think I may have mentioned this last time, but um, George O'Gambon's notion of the going back to um, Greco-Roman societies of like the Homo Saker, the the yeah. like mm. condemned person who is outside of the laws, mm. Mm. who is kind of a weird mixture of the sacred and prof- and the profane. I feel like there's something going on there, but I can't quite. Yeah, yeah. Get at it if you know what I mean. Mm. Like, um, I think those kind of concepts of liminality and maybe even hybridity are in play there somewhere. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that's 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 just something to think about in the future, I think. Cause... Mm. Yeah. I think it's in, a very, in a very real way as well. Even though Riggsy is... Even though Riggsy's, like, got the tattoo as part of a sort of scheme to set up this little murder mystery story for the Doctor, mm-hmm. in a real sense... With, like, punishment and death penalties, there's always a, like, number of people, however small, that are going to be innocent, that Mm. are going to suffer. Mm. And so Riggsy and then, obviously, Clara, because he passes it on to her, kind of show the the flaw in the sort of laws that they have on Trap Street in that way as well, because there's no way, even with the two, like, Januses in the area, they're not used for, like those kinds of law enforcement purposes obviously Mm. and some of the residents in order to maintain their policy of killing people who break the rules some innocent people are going to die and so maybe me has like done the maths on that and accepts it and is Mm. willing to risk Mm. Riggsy for those reasons or I don't know Mm. That was a bit tangential to what you were saying. But... No, no, that's a that's a really interesting point as well, and I guess it com- comes back to the notion of the kind of the seeming arbitrariness of the the quantum shade system, mm. and like it's interesting that it's kind of it's explained in ways that are to do with the um, you know maintaining the the trap street itself, which we which we are shown to be kind of a, a good thing and a kind of seemingly sort of compassionate place inherently but we're told that after we've seen someone Mm. be killed by it in quite a horrifying way Mm. which i think is a very Mm. deliberate bit of balancing and very effective i think there's also um a connection between what you were talking about with donna and what happens with rigsy as well because obviously both 
lose the and, and Clara. Well, what what is threatened to happen to Clara because they they both they all lose or have the threat of losing their memory against their will. Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely something something there as well, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean that's a thread we'll very much be picking up mm. on when we come to Hellbent, mm. which seems to be like the theme for this episode <laughs> so far. <laughs> uh, the feral. Yeah. I was also going to mention actually. Um, I was partly thinking of this because of uh, Jacob. You were talking about the sort of face-off between the Doctor and Clara and, and me as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I just found it really interesting as sort of an expression of like the limitations of what the Doctor can do and still be considered to have the identity of the doctor because there's the moment because after he's done the big speech and Mia's suddenly looking quite scared and vulnerable which is uh, another great example of Maisie Williams's acting I think like Mm. she kind of realizes what she's dealing with which she hasn't before then Clara says your reign of terror would end with the first crying child and you know it Mm. which I really I really like as just a limiting point on how dark the doctor whilst being the doctor will go because there's some kind of it's not the most like generous moral code maybe but there's something in there of like there's a limit to which the character of the doctor would not go Mm. and still maintain that identity because the doctor represents something more than that something that would not allow that to happen Mm. and i just thought that was like quite affecting because I, I I'm not a huge fan of like well I don't like dark storytelling dark and edgy storytelling for the sake of it mm. anyway but I don't really like that with the character of the doctor it's one of the reasons why to be fair I haven't actually looked into Time Lord Victorious that much but I was a bit sus of it because it's like we're exploring the dark and edgy mm. side to the doctor which is just I would rather have narratives about a character that tries in a nuanced and not always successful way to do the right thing than to just have characters acting sort of amorally for arbitrary reasons or or for Mm. the sake of angsting about it afterwards so i really liked that bit like maybe the world is just divided into people who would not be willing to have children cry like others suffer and people who would and that's some kind of morality. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that fits again into the something we've been talking about about the the moral code that the Doctor, particularly the Twelfth Doctor, kind of almost constructs for himself and holds himself to as an example. And guess what? We'll be coming back to that in Hellbent. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I think. Um, I guess also th- it's kind of. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it's kind of ambiguous also where me stands on that spectrum mm, in this yeah. story. Yeah. And I think deliberately so, because she's certainly willing to upset the um, Anna Anna's daughter, who's also a Janus. I can't remember what her name is. Yeah, I can't either. But yeah, she's uh, ambiguous as ever, mm. I guess, in yeah. that regard. <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a very good, actually quite pointed comparison. That, like, clearly there has been a child directly upset by what Mii's doing for all that it is for the greater good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what were you going to say, Jacob? Um, the only thing I was going to say was, um, I know it's a, it's a very small moment, but I really like that bit. You picked up on it earlier when 
the doctor realizes that the 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 mother is is in a is in a stasis thing. She's not dead. Mm. Yeah. Um, and he sees he's got to use the key. And I love the moment where there's no hesitation. He's just like this girl mm. needs her yeah. mother, and just puts the key in. Like it's so that bit. Like I I don't know. Like I know it's such a small moment, but I always find that bit really like emotional mm. and powerful. And and I think I think it's good to have that alongside everything that we were just talking about with like the darkness yeah, because yeah. again I think it it balances it really nicely. Yeah, no, it's just wonderful. <laughs> and I think actually it's a weird one because precisely what's powerful about that moment is that it's underplayed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know this is this isn't like um, I'm coming down quite hard. I'm going to be coming down quite hard on the tenth Doctor in this episode, but I just generally do. Um, this isn't like the end of time where he sort of has a bit of a whinge about how, oh, I could do so much more, but now mm-hmm. I have to sacrifice myself. Woe is me. It is just straight up. Nope. Okay. This is how it has to be. Fair enough. And of course, and like that moment sort of sets up what's going the whole of the next episode mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. With all of like what he's going to go through while he, and obviously he doesn't know that yet, but it's still... I think taken in tandem, it still makes for something very powerful. I think what I love about the character of the Doctor is that, like, he will... I think that he would still look back at the end of Heaven Sent and he's got out and all he's been through. I think he would still look back and feel like the maths was worth it for the sake of, like, getting the girl's mother. Mm. And that's, like, pretty darn heroic Mm. in, like, the best way. Like, Like... not just in a sort of superficial way, but in a sort of deep, admirable way. I yeah, don't know. It's yeah, just no, very absolutely. affecting. I I hadn't really thought of like that. That is that heaven sent is a direct consequence of him doing that good action. But I, I feel like I have faith in the doctor. So in like Capaldi's doctor, that he would look back and be like, yeah, you know, fair dues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess, um, unless anyone has anything else burning that they want to talk about, that seems like a pretty good um, point of transition then. So, it's time to move on. And it's time to punch through the wall of Heaven Sent. (laughs) (laughs) Probably shouldn't make it sound like suffering. I can't keep doing this. I can't. I can't always do this. It's not fair! It's just not fair! Why can't I just lose? But I can remember, Clara. You don't understand. I can remember it all. Every time. And you'll still be gone. Whatever I do, you still won't be there. So, this is basically a masterpiece, in my opinion. I don't think that's likely to be a controversial (laughs) opinion in present company, but yeah, this is. I think what I think what really sets Heaven Sent apart and really works about it is the fact that it works so perfectly in the context of the arc of the series but can also kind of stand alone Hmm. outside it 
And I think that's because it is obviously tailored to the emotional state and moment that the Doctor is in, but I think it can also be accessed as a sort of metaphor for a variety of different mental states and things. And the most obvious one, of course, is grief, which I think is but like a general grief as well as the Doctor's specific mourning for Clara and the difficulty of getting through that. But I think one of the things that I've always found most sort of affecting about this episode, I say always, I've not actually seen this that many times, but I think that it's always sort of seemed resonant with my own experiences of depression. The like thing of everything kind of feeling like a massive struggle, which I think obviously the the mourning can cause those kinds of feelings as well. And so I think that that's kind of what is so powerful about it. Obviously, there's a lot of ingredients that go into that, not least of all being Capaldi's performance. It's incredible. It's an incredible achievement, and I think it really showcases the talent that um, you've spoken of in some of our earlier episodes, Kieran, of him going from humour to serious. Because I think within like not that within a few minutes, we have the heartbreaking moment where he says, "Sort of see Clara," and Clara's not there. To the finally run out of corridor now, there's a life summed up, which has a kind of tragic quality to it as well, but is also, you know, a funny sort of self-aware remark. And so I think it really shows that kind of range and just the variety of emotions that he cycles through across mm-hmm. the whole of the episode is really remarkable. I really like how I spoke of when we were talking about Face the Raven of this kind of moment between where Riggsy, where the Doctor says that Clara's risk-taking is getting to be a problem and of course we see how kind of heartbreakingly serious that becomes and we also have something similar here with the sort of with the opening when the Doctor comes out of the uh, teleportation chamber and says I'm the Doctor I'm going to find you and I will never ever stop which mm. I feel like is the kind of thing that we hear the Doctor say a lot over the course of the new series and I think that it is one of those moments um, similar to in Under the Lake before the flood where the show kind of takes its own logic of all these people are dying, like random unit people in unit stories and stuff. And in this, it's the fact that the Doctor is saying that he's going to have this like relentless journey for justice. And here we really see the sort of heartbreakingness of the fact that he doesn't ever stop, even mm. though he like multiple times expresses that he, he says, can't I just lose? He says, isn't it ever anybody else's turn? And we mm. see the responsibility of having the identity of the doctor um, and what that kind of heaps upon him. I think this is also where we see the, the sort of doctor as a identity rather than necessarily a, a personal like like just a person's name which i think is a really interesting like the most interesting take on the name of the doctor i think is oh that's a <laughs> that's a thing where we see the doctor tell a story of what he might do to clara in the tardis in the way that missy is telling the story mm. of the doctor escaping from somewhere to clara in the witch is familiar when he says, like, I'm nothing without an audience, and he's like, first assume you're going to survive, and then figuring out in this kind of, like, in this kind of mental TARDIS space what he is going to do. So he's kind of telling himself the story of what it means to be the Doctor um, through the 
device of telling it to Clara. So it's kind of a implied that the Doctor is like a story that is told to people and through people more than it is a kind of personal identity. I also just really like the monster, quote unquote, of the kind of um, the corpse wrapped in veils because obviously that's the kind of spectre of mortality that is haunting him through the confession dial. But also it's such a kind of specific like childhood trauma of first realising that death is going to happen mm. that is haunting him. It's not any of his like enemies. It could have mm. been a Dalek. That would have been weird. And it's such a sort of non... It's not, it's not like a deep cut on Gallifrey law, who mm. it is or what it is either. It's just something simple, but you can understand to be horrifying as a viewer. Mm. And the fact that also I think that the flies is what we often like see to show that the creature is near him. But presumably there's also a stench, like mm. a like a visceral sort of corpse stench that is what the flies are drawn to. And so there's this very kind of sensory, sickening unpleasantness about it that you can understand why he's so scared. And the fact that it's so big as well, it's because he's seeing it from the perspective of a child rather than Hmm. his grown self. And that's kind of the childishness that we all feel faced with the fact of death, whether it be our own or somebody else's, or just this overwhelming anxiety that pursues him around the confession dial castle. So I suppose that's kind of what I wanted to say is as in as far as it links to like themes that I have been looking at throughout this series. But the main the main comment that I really have about Heaven Sent is that it's so intricately and beautifully put together and just the fact that re-watching it is so rewarding, all the things that I noticed on repeat viewings and it's so heartbreaking and like I just tear up every time when it's the bit where he's like repeatedly punching his way through the wall and God, this is a gorgeous, tragic, beautiful episode of anything in the world. It's so good. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, uh, Jacob, what do you think of Heaven Sent? I think I've mentioned it many times, even on here. Yeah, again, it's a masterpiece. I go so far as to say it's the best episode of Doctor Who ever full stop and I mean like new series old series I've thought about this for a while and I was like comparing it to like my other like top stuff and I was like they don't touch it like they just Mm. this is just fantastic I mean like it's such an intricately put together episode at the level of plot writing Uh, the direction is fantastic Um, Mm. I mean Rachel Tulele who directs this and Hellbent is just like phenomenal the cinematography and the editing, like uh, uh, like the editing in particular, is a really interesting one because that final montage uh, when he's repeating again and again and again is it, it's something that like is I think is a very delicate balance to get right because you have to uh, create this sense of repetition and exhaustion while at the same time keeping a momentum 
Um, and I think it does it brilliantly. The lighting is fantastic. Uh, just like across the board, everything is good. Here's something that's going to surprise people who've listened to this before. I <laughs> even like Maury Gold's music in this. I think mm. it's great. <laughs> and that is not something that you're going to hear me say very often. And I think, yeah, like thematically, it's a very powerful story about, as we were saying, loss, grief, death, mourning. But it's also about exhaustion, you know. Like mm. Elizabeth Sandover has like a, a kind of a take on it of like you know Stephen Moffat's kind of exhaustion at this point is mm. something that's being reflected in this. It's it's also a, a really like beautiful metaphor for life in general, um, <sighs> you know, in the sense of like you know, as you were saying, like. It evokes those feelings of depression in terms of like, oh, it's going on doing the same thing again and again and again and exhaustion. But it it also includes birth and death within itself. You know, like Mm. the doctor is born and dies many times, albeit in a very odd way. Mm. Um, And is stalked by a figure of death continually. And that you get that really like wonderful, poetic kind of opening voiceover about. Uh, you know, as you come into this world, something else is also born, and you will run, it will walk, and it's the idea of death constantly, you know, stalking you, and eventually it does catch up. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I think also in terms of kind of the stuff that I've been tracking throughout this series, there's some of that in there as well. I mean, obviously, there's if we're talking about the state of exception, there's the fact that it is described as a torture chamber. And, you know, the Time Lords are trying to get the information out of the Doctor through means of torture. You know, for effectively, like Rassilon puts it in terms of for the safety of Gallifrey, really. Like he says, it's mm, a threat mm. to all of us. We needed to know. And then alongside that, I think there is a... There's, there's obviously the sense that the castle is almost like a, a, a kind of panopticon in that it's, you know, it's, he's constantly mm. under surveillance pretty much because you have those screens where he can see himself and the Time Lords mm. are obviously what's, what, watching what's going on because they know when he gets out of there. And yeah, I think, I think in a wider sense in that way, there is a kind of, I think there is some kind of like critique of like a liberal conception of freedom within this, you know, that the kind of thing that someone like Marx would, would really critique, which is that, you know, you're you're free to, to do to do what you want in the sense of you can sell your labour so you're free, you know, you can you can choose if you're not happy with this job, you can choose to go somewhere else, you know. Which obviously, as someone like Marx would say, completely ignores the economic constraints that people are under. It completely ignores the fact that people are compelled to sell their labour. Now, I'm not suggesting this is an episode about selling your labour, but I am suggesting that like that there's a there's a moment in Hell Bent well, there's a couple of moments where they say the Doctor could have walked out of there at any point. He just needed to tell us what he knew. Mm. And so there is that idea, again, of like, you're free to do whatever you want, but he's not, and he's caught within these constraints. You know, quite literally, he is constrained because he has to run from one end of the castle to the other to avoid this creature. You, know, you get all the, the kind of the way in which the castle moves around him. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just absolutely wonderful. And... That there's so much thought been put into this. I mean, like even stuff like the the direction. There's that moment where 
the skull on the on the top of the castle, the turrets, mm-hmm. fades into uh, uh, Peter Capaldi's face, fades into the skull, yes. and it's you know a clear hint of what what's actually really happening. You know, he's just dying over and over again. It also works wonderfully with Hellbent, of, of course, because it. Mm. I don't know. Th- there's a uh, there's such a kind of emotional punch to uh, punch to the idea that mm. um, he's been in there for four billion years because he's he wants to try and save Clara, and yeah, and I think the final thing to kind of mention uh, is Capaldi's performance is just extraordinary. I mean, like. He is the only character in this episode, apart from a brief appearance by Clara, and obviously there's the veil, as it's known, uh, in the credits, and and that is it. Um, and he 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 carries the whole episode. Uh, his his acting is just phenomenal. Like I mean, he's had some amazing performances this season, but this is the best probably out of all of them, and that is saying something. Yeah, like you 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 know you really believe that. He has been going through this for four billion years. You know, there's these great moments where he kind of breaks down because Clara isn't there. There's the more subtle moments that you were mentioning where, you know, there's kind of a recognition that she's not there. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's one of the best pieces of television I have ever seen uh, in anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as for me... I mean, yeah, there's, there's no contest. He- Heaven Sent is my favourite episode of the new series. The only reason I don't say it's my favourite episode of Doctor Who altogether is that I'm not in the habit of comparing the new series and the classic series. I think that's a difficult thing to do. Mm. I think I've talked about this a little bit before. But, yeah, it, it's it's a masterpiece, obviously. We've all used the word masterpiece. Of course we have. There's no <laughs> other word for it. And I like I say this as someone who thinks masterpiece is a really overused word that has like been denuded of a lot of its value. But like there's no other word for it. It's a masterpiece from Stephen Moffat, it's a masterpiece from Peter Capaldi, it's a masterpiece from Rachel Talale, it's a masterpiece from everyone involved. Even Jenna Coleman for that matter. She's on screen for about thirty seconds. And like those are still an amazing 30 seconds. And I think part of why it is so brilliant is something that um, you particularly have gotten at there, um, Bethan. There's a universality to it. There's, it's a kind of, it's a, quite an open-ended metaphor for um, really all kinds of experiences. Like some people, um, you mentioned this, Jacob, um, Elizabeth Sandifer and actually Darren Mooney has done this quite a bit as well have read it as, at least in part, a metaphor for Stephen Moffat's time on the series, uh, that he's kind of coming to the end of. It's interesting, incidentally, that the Doctor refers to the castle as a puzzle box, which is uh, the kind of structure that is often referred to in his episodes, and even the way it kind of builds towards a twist. Uh, you know, there's a sense like he's he's running around trying to figure out how to escape it. He's both trying to figure it out as he goes and trying to escape it. No, I'm actually not the biggest fan. I think it's a perfectly valid reading. I ju- I'm just not the biggest fan because I think it's a little... I I think it's a little too pat. Mm. And as I say, part of what I love about this episode is that it is so open. It can be about grief and certainly very easy to read that way. It can be about depression. It can be about mental illness. Uh, it can be about life in general. Just running away from death. 
I'll come back to that in a moment, actually, because there's something interesting formal going on there, I think. But one of the things that I really want to touch on with the um, the writing in particular, although also the direction, is that I think part of what makes this brilliant is that it it has that kind of imperious confidence which allows it to just break every possible rule, every rule going. Like this is a one-hander, as we've as we've been saying, so there really shouldn't be much dialogue. But there's loads. He talks quite a lot in this episode. Some of it's in voiceover, but quite a lot of it is just him saying exposition out loud, mm. which seems like such a script writing no-no. But it works. And it works thematically, for a reason I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, likewise, another kind of rule of Doctor Who is that you should never see what the Doctor is thinking. But this is a whole episode about what the Doctor is thinking. And in which we get to see his his thought processes very deliberately in like specific moments. You know, what he's thinking as he's falling out a window, that kind of thing. <laughs> and the reason why I think both of these things work is because they are both centered around Clara. Mm-hmm. The reason he's delivering exposition out loud is because he's still talking to Clara. The reason why the the stuff in his head in the kind of mental TARDIS works is because it's him, his thought process is how he explains things to Clara. And even that is a, like something that I find really relatable, that notion of like rationalizing something as how you would explain it to someone, particularly to someone quite close to you. Now, the formal thing that I was mentioning earlier that I wanted to come back to, this is an episode that is built around a twist to a greater or lesser extent. And that twist is a brilliant twist. Just the notion that he is, that this isn't the first time that he's mm-hmm. been through it, that he's going through it over and over again. Like most great twists, the reason, part of how it works is that the episode is completely different on second viewing. Like, uh, Jacob, you pointed out that great shot with the skull fading into his face. There's loads of stuff like that throughout the episode. There's the clockwork, for instance, the repeated motif of clockwork particularly in the kind of chamber where he starts out, which is partly how the castle works and partly how his time in the, the dial is working. Also recalls the opening sequence, actually, of Doctor Who, of the mm. the Capaldi era of Doctor Who. Yeah. So again, there's that sense of him being trapped within a, a Doctor Who episode. But the other thing about a twist like that, a twist that kind of defines an episode, is that it is, if it's done well, inevitable. Everything is pointing to it. It's inescapable. Like the veil. Like the notion of death. This episode is built around death in that way. And so it's kind of like you were saying about the whole series um, in our first part of this episode, Jacob. The form is mirroring the content so beautifully. And so much of the episode is like, is kind of screaming that twist at you. But you either you don't notice, or if you do notice, then things start to click together. Oh, it's it's magnificent. I think part of the reason it works so well as a metaphor, and as a metaphor for grief particularly, and for depression as well, although that's not necessarily my experience that I'm speaking from here. For one thing, the part of the, re- the, the reason the grief thing works so well is that there's, it's kind of the episode as I've sort of already suggested is built around a paradox because on the one hand the doctor is suffering from grief but on the other hand it's the thing that's powering him 
it's the reason he's getting through this is to save Clara, but also uh, it's how he is, how his mental processes are working. It's simultaneously tormenting him and acting as his impetus. And the way in which that that grief operates, again, we see again and again throughout the episode, there's that lovely moment that you mentioned, Bethan, where he says, see Clara, and then realizes she's not there, Uh, which is, again, a thing that happens where you just kind of, you trip up and you realize, oh, that's right, the world has changed. It's not what it was before. And you ha- your habits of thinking have to adapt. One thing that I find particularly telling is the painting. Now the painting is is interesting partly because it shows how long he's been there already because the paint is flaking. We were having this discussion afterwards actually. We weren't clear if it was him who painted it or if it was already there because it's kind of his head. My guess has always been that he painted it but I think it is deliberately kind of ambiguous. Presumably painted it over several lifetimes actually. Mm. But what is interesting about it, and something that I only clocked this time around, is it's out of date. Because it's not Clara as she appeared when he last saw her. Her hair is longer. It's her as she was, like, probably around the time of, like, Series 8. And there's, there's something really interesting going on there about the way in which the memory sort of cheats. And your remembered impression of someone is not what they actually were. It's like a cipher. It's something to talk to in your head. It's a still image to look at. Now, the other reason why I think the um, the metaphor works so well is because for all of its darkness, and this is a really dark episode in many ways, for all of the kind of the desperation of it, uh, I mean, this works really well as a horror episode as well, there's the, the viscerality of it, of the, the notion of this dead body that is dragging around and the visceral experiences of the Doctor punching, presumably breaking his the bones in his hand, mm-hmm. punching through this hard surface. And then the camera really dwells on what happens to him after the veil, like, burns him. I mean, this, and I presume as well, this must be the, the only episode of Doctor Who in which we've ever seen the Doctor's skull. I certainly can't think of another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, a marvellous head or whatever it is that says <laughs> <Lattes> in superb <laughs> oh yeah but yeah again it is the skull is this kind of memento mori thing but what I think really gives it its power is that it holds out hope the whole thing is centred around hope the hope that you can get through that indestructible wall I mean, the other thing as well that works about the metaphor that just occurred to me before we came to record, the thing about grief and the thing about various kinds of mental illness, actually, and all these kinds of experiences, is they're isolating. Mm -hmm. You go through them alone because you have to. But that doesn't mean that, that the influence of another person can't be felt. And that's the other thing that's going on through this episode. It's so beautifully constructed. I mean, like, I I will close this out now, but I want to close it out by explaining part of why I feel so strongly about it and why I feel like I have a bit of a an insight into why it works, which is that a few years ago now, um, I had a kind of, a very sudden and sort of tumultuous break with a, a close friend in which 
basically it became clear that we couldn't see each other again not to go into it too much and in the wake of that i was left reeling it was very it was kind of weirdly akin to a a sudden death in that like the world seems to have changed utterly overnight which is why i use that kind of in that, that kind of language and it by some weird whim by some weird quirk the the next evening literally the 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 evening after this had happened for some reason i decided to watch heaven sent having not really watched any of series nine or even much of capaldi's tenure which had um this was the beginning of 2018 so it had kind of just ended as well and it spoke to me it spoke directly to me that notion of that i mentioned of like catching yourself that notion of like of those kinds of conversations in your head that way of framing things and it was it was very much it's that thing in um alan bennett's the history boys where one of the characters says like the best moments in reading are when you come across something like an experience or a way of putting things that you had thought was unique to you and it's as if a hand comes out from the page and takes yours and that's very much how that was for me now there is a sequel to this story which i will tell when we come to hellbent but yeah like i i think i've made it pretty clear that how much i love this story and you the hybrid Kieran? i am in fact the hybrid <laughs> i'm gonna tell on you from Rassilon. oh no please don't <laughs> I don't want to have to punch a wall. I wanted to say something like in relation to the like loneliness of the of the doctor in this episode, which mm. is that I really like the shot where um it pans out across the TARDIS console room, like to right the other side of it. Because I think that it's like a really it was for some reason like really revelatory to me because all of a sudden like the big, it's bigger on the insideness. Just looks like it's empty, mm-hmm. and I don't know. It was just such a really like interesting encapsulation of how the Doctor's whole existence is like designed to have one or more other people as companions mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. him, and how sort of isolated he is in this moment. Yeah, it's just another really one another one of those sort of perfect moments where all the elements of the episode came together the writing the direction Mm. just everything and also just the fact i guess that i think what is partly so heartbreaking about it is the fact that he's having to go through this an extraordinary number of times over an extraordinary period of time but his grief is always fresh yeah because he's always having to burn the old version of himself to make a new one who has to re-experience everything and so Mm. I don't know, it's like, not that it's therefore more than ordinary experiences of these kinds of emotions, but it is a particularly amplified idea of what the that those kind of processes can look like. Yeah, for sure. And I guess as part of that is the notion of the fact that what he's going through in terms of grief as well as externalizing the, the, the confession dial is a kind of endurance test. But what's what's emphasized throughout this episode and then retrospectively in um, Hellbent is the fact that he has to keep choosing. He has to choose to keep going. Mm. He has to choose to keep trying to punch through the wall. He has to, to choose essentially not to give up. 
uh, not to give up the, the secret that he supposedly has about the hybrid uh, and not to give up on just on trying to get out and trying to save Clara. And it's that that like fuels the exhaustion, I think. The fact that he has to keep trying. One of my, and this is a crowded field, but one of my favorite moments in the in the episode is that bit where once when he's realized what's happened, when he says, "Can't I just lose?" And he, uh, this, this the lights in the TARDIS console are going down, and he's coming to terms with what's happening, and he talks about how there's all this struggle that he's have has to go through, and you'll still be gone. Again, I think part of the power of the episode derives from the fact that he goes through that over and over and over and over again. And he keeps punching through the wall. And he gets there. You may say Mm. this episode is a masterpiece. But I say, (laughs) that's a hell of a (laughs) bad! I just had, I just... No, that was correct and good. Thank you. So, having successfully punched through the wall of Heaven Sent, I'm very keen on making this segue work. <laughs> um, we're now in Hellbent. Yeah. Let's do it. Like we've done everything else. Together. How about we just don't? Why don't we just fly away somewhere? Oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Gotcha. (laughs) Good luck, Clara. Good luck, Doctor. So, Jacob, do you want to start us off on this one? Yes. Yeah, I think uh, this is another exceptional episode. It's beautifully directed again. The cinematography is great. The writing is fantastic. And it really brings to a head very effectively the central themes of the series. I think, yeah, there's there's several interesting things going on here. Alyssa Frank's Black Archive book on this episode is really, really good. Uh, I'd recommend it. it. It talks about a number of things, but one of the things it talks about is... Um, it has a feminist reading that I was referring to in one of our previous episodes, You know, kind of looking at how this episode is interrogating the, the patriarchal nature of the Doctor, looks at it particularly through what happens with Clara's character. But another thing that's really interesting is it talks a lot about how the episode plays with genre, uh, in particular mm-hmm. how it uses the, the aesthetic and the genre of the Western which is really interesting. So um, there's a couple of kind of interviews in in the in the book, um, and also references to the script, where um, Rachel Talele has admitted that you know she looked at westerns as as kind of inspiration, and you can see it in the aesthetic. Obviously, we we have you know the the barren like sort of desert area of of Gallifrey outside the city. There's the the barn where the Doctor was born and. You know the people around him. It's very, very much like the, you know, the costuming and everything kind of evokes the sort of the idea of the frontier, if you like. Mm. But then there's also the narrative framing of the episode, when in terms of the fact that the Doctor is telling Clara the story in Nevada. Mm. Um, so that's mm. another 
obvious one. And I think what's really interesting about the the kind of the Western aesthetic in terms of the themes that we've seen in this series is it brings us back again. People have heard of me saying this on like a broken record. The state of exception, in that we get a very clear distinction between inside and outside that is broken down. Uh, in that we have the Time Lords in their domed city, quite literally encased in a dome, and then we have the people outside it. You know, so uh, mm. the people who the Doctor is with, possibly some of his family members. We don't know. Uh, there is kind of an implication that there might be what's going on. Yeah, so there's this very clear distinction between inside and insi- inside and outside, and it gets broken down. And the Doctor, in using this kind of Western aesthetic, the Doctor is positioned as the kind of the outlaw, the outsider, if you like. So again, we have that that sense of you know lawlessness, if you like. But what's interesting is that the Doctor as outlaw becomes the president. Mm. So... Again, we've got this this real troubling of these distinctions between law and lawness, lawlessness, you know, where he ends up taking over from the president, who also is both operating within and outside the law, in the sense that he's he is the president, Rassilon is the president, but he's also, uh, you know, willing to use torture against the doctor, you know, and effectively break the rules of how confession dials are used and what they are in order to protect Gallifrey there's that moment where he says you know what he says you know I have out in the in the desert where in the dry lands where no one matters no witnesses so there is a sense that he's he's willing to you know kill the doctor and it's very interesting because it comes back to what I was saying earlier about kind of this is really interrogating the doctor and his state of exception and there's you know, it's never really summarised or crystallised any better than the Doctor becoming president and then breaking his own rules again, in this case, to save Clara. And, you know, we get things like the Doctor's use of violence against the the General uh, when he shoots the General, which is... That's an interesting scene as well, because I think... I know a lot of... That's controversial. I've, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's not... It's not within the Doctor's character, you know, uh, I don't think they should have done it. And I think that when we look back at the series as a whole and the way in which we've seen this kind of rule-breaking foregrounded throughout, it's clearly a culmination of the of the themes that we've, we've seen. And it's the idea that the Doctor will go, you know, very far to save Clara, which is the central problem, and it's why we get the conclusion that we do. He has he has to forget Clara in order to in order for this to be resolved. Yeah, so I think I get why people are kind of against it, but I I, I do think there's it makes sense within the themes of the episode, and also crucially, it is challenged. I mean, almost immediately after Clara's like, "You killed that man," you know. I mean, he's not you know he's not killed him as such; like he does regenerate, yeah. but the point is still there. He's, and and later on we'll get um oh, I've forgotten the name of the the woman in charge of the sisterhood of Khan. Oh Hila. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. Uh she will say, you know, you've broken every code you ever lived by. So it's very yeah. obvious that, that that kind of is the central thing that we're really drawing to a close here. And I think something that I really love about this episode as well is the way in which the doctor is portrayed as an outsider and the way in which Gallifrey society is 
shown to be a society that is deeply divided and and clearly like excludes a whole set of people really and i think it's it's a very good corrective to the kind of sort of like imperious like elite doctor you know who um which we've seen many times, he's like very arrogant and he's kind of brought up in series eight as well in his interactions with, with Danny Pink, you know, the, the mm. sense of Time Lords as aristocratic. And I think breaking that down and having the Doctor as someone who was clearly born outside of uh, that almost aristocratic society and ends up inside, I think is a really interesting way to go. And as we'll see when we get to series 12, that's maybe not being maintained. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. And I mean, like, even stuff like the, the 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 narrative framing with Clara, even that plays into these themes. You know, there's the point where Clara, Clara interprets the story about Rassilon and the troops firing on the Doctor. Uh, she says, you know, where was this? Was it space, Glasgow? And the Doctor's like, yeah, space Glasgow. <laughs> um <laughs> And, and and she says there was this gang boss and he wanted to kill you. So again, it's like mm. the it's a it's a bit of humour, but it's also a bit of humour that that really wonderfully kind of enriches those central themes, you know, by kind of showing the the president portraying the president as uh, someone who is sort of the face of the law and is like the sovereign leader, if you like, but is also portrayed as an outlaw. Yeah, like it's it's a wonderful story. I really like the the Clara's ending in this one. I completely see the point of it now. You know, I think it makes sense, this idea that she's kind of caught in this liminal space between life and death, uh, albeit temporarily. I think that really does make sense with kind of the Twelfth Doctor's inability to let go, but also it makes sense in the sen- in the sense that, and I'm kind of referring to stuff that the Black Archive book talks about here, in the sense that Clara becomes the Doctor, really, you know, and and it's a, as you were saying earlier, it's a kind of correction to that imbalance between Doctor and Companion, somewhat. Um, yeah, wonderful story. I have other things to say, but we'll get to them later. Um, yeah. So I said earlier that Heaven Sent is my favourite Doctor Who episode. That's, my, well, my favourite episode of the new series. Hellbent is a close second. Uh, fittingly enough, I suppose. I think it is wonderful. As, as indeed you said several times, quite rightly, I think. Um, and it's funny because they're such odd companion pieces. Heaven Sent is so meticulous. So kind of, so contained so laser focused hell bent is a mess it's got like it's plot lines just go all over the place it's set in so many different places at once it's got simultaneous timelines going on it's got just just everything thrown at the wall this is an episode that like heavily redefines various aspects of the time lords just kind of off the cuff as a matter of course, like, there's the really, I think, pleasing notion of what cloister bells are that turns up early on, and the redefinition of what the Matrix is, and, oh, Rassilon's back. And all of these things are just kind of 
by the by. Because they're not important. And the the episode recognises, rightly, that they're not important. That Gallifrey isn't that important. With all of the, like, the decades of fan-wanky lore <laughs> around it, is not important. What's important about this story is the Doctor and Clara Oswald. Just as the central point of this whole series. And so that's what we're about. That's why we can just tear through all of this. That's why Gallifrey, which has been missing for like two seasons at this point, we can just come across it and basically just storm through it as a means to sending Clara off on her way at the end of the episode. Because that's where we're really going. That's what's really important here. So... That's not to say that there aren't very interesting things going on with Gallifrey, of course. I think, Jacob, you've touched on a lot of that. On a lot of the the notion of the Doctors and the kind of Time Lords privilege, I suppose, is really the only word for it. And the way that's pointed up in various ways. I mean, actually, the Western thing is very interesting, because I hadn't thought of this. But, um, yeah, obviously we do have those generic tropes of the Western... especially early on, of the Doctor as the kind of the outsider, the sort of lone gunslinger, albeit without a gun, mm. pointedly without a gun, actually, but with a spoon. And all of these kind of things, the the kind of civilization versus wilderness. There's all these kinds of things that, uh, particularly visual tropes, that are very mm. familiar to us from Westerns. Now, Westerns, there's a lot of good work on this. Um, someone like Mark Cronlund Anderson has written quite a lot about this. Westerns are centred as a rule, on the frontier myth, the essentially founding myth of America, which essentially posits this kind of, um, this, I guess you call it a dialectic between civilization and wilderness, between kind of independence, uh, a sort of independent spirit and a force of law, you might say, law and chaos, to put it another way, and how these kinds of, this, this, conflict or this um not a conflict but like this dialectic this uh, synthesis of these disparate elements is a kind of positive to be at the heart of the american spirit uh rachel talale i believe is american by the way or mm. i think so yeah she is now why this is interesting and why this is relevant to this british science fiction program is because the frontier myth is a myth mm. and it's used throughout american cinema both um, played straight and deconstructed as a vehicle of American imperialism. Like uh, Full Metal Jacket and a lot of other Vietnam films, for instance, Mm -hmm. are basically frontier stories, are kind of westerns just in a different bit of the world. Mm -hmm. And so what this is doing is it's showing us this imperialistic underbelly that there has always been to the Time Lords who originally were based on kind of like um, sort of Oxbridge academics, essentially. And part of the the journey of the series has been about undermining or at least shining a light on the layers of privilege involved in being that kind of academic underpinning to empire. I was there, Kieran, the Oxford time war. <laughs> Yeah, our resident Oxford alumnus is looking very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, there's a there's a lovely line actually, uh, which unfortunately was deleted from the um, the finished thing after the Doctor has taken over the 
the presidency and has basically assumed control over Gallifrey. The the general asks him what he's done with the High Council, uh, and he says, "Oh, they've been uh, they've been reassigned. Uh, even Gallifrey needs a sanitation department." And at that point, um, Ohila comes in with a couple of her her like sisterhood flunkies friends whatever um and says interesting only a true aristocrat considers honest work a punishment so far your presidency is distressingly typical and so we have this notion that the doctor is for all that he may be an outsider in many ways to gallifrey he is still inescapably bound up mm-hmm. in that um mm-hmm. in that privilege in that imperialistic mindset that's why he, the way in which he can, like, put his plan into motion is by weaponizing uh, his privilege, by weaponizing the way in which he is viewed, his reputation among soldiers. It's interesting that you point up the uh, his relationship with Danny Pink, actually, because that always revolved around the tension between a soldier and a commissioned officer. Yeah. And Danny very quickly identifies the, of- the doctor as a born officer. And so he proves to be again here. He's not only an officer, but a war hero. Mm. He's referred to as the Doctor of War. And he seems very happy to resume that title uh, in order to get to where he wants to be. And so in doing so, we kind of implicitly return to this notion that the the Doctor as an identity is a title, is a set of principles, because he's shedding those principles. And again, that's pointed up Again and again in this episode, Ohila says to him, are you just being cruel or just being cowardly? Mm-hmm. And so again, that notion of never be cruel, never be cowardly, the the Terrence Dix is like manifesto for the Doctor, uh, which has been stated, restated several times in the new series, including by the Twelfth Doctor himself, is very pointedly pointed to here. And the Doctor himself even says, I can't be the Doctor all the time. Like, the the desperation to which he's been pushed uh, goes so far that he's willing to abandon basically everything about himself. Mm. But that's also underpinned by the fact that he sees himself as still upholding his duty. That's why he sa- his justification for saving Clara, which he, as he says to her, I had a duty of care. Which is a, a phrase that is, um, rings back throughout the Twelfth Doctor's tenure. Uh, and is to do with his kind of reframing of his role in series eight. There's lots of kind of 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 those kinds of echoes going on. Uh, there's a really nice and really subtle one that I only noticed this time, where the shot of the Doctor when he appears to Clara uh, as she faces the Raven is an echo of the shot from the Fires of Pompeii. It's an echo of the tenth Doctor appearing to um, uh, Caecilius, I think his name is, mm. um, and like proffering his hand from the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. But it's framed differently. Because in that shot, Caecilius is like cowering on the floor with his family. The doctor, framed in light, appears before him and extends a hand downwards. The shot is upwards. It's emphasizing the doctor as otherworldly messenger, as like um this the benevolent overlord, I guess you might say. Do not be afraid. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Whereas the shot we get in Hellbent, the Doctor and Clara are on an equal level. The shot is on their level. He extends a hand across rather than down. And I think that's incredibly telling in terms of where their relationship is at. And 
how the Twelfth Doctor is framed in regard to Clara. And of course, all of this is building up to the their final sort of scenes together. And what I think is one of the most emotionally raw series of scenes in Doctor Who history, and one of the best written. The degree of emotional intelligence involved in their like final conversation before um, his memory is wiped. The half-jokey, like, oh, you know, we could just go, we could just keep going. Uh, oh, yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? All that stuff. It's so beautiful and so tragic. Combined, of course, with the the scenes that we find we realize we've been seeing throughout of the Doctor or of the Doctor not recognizing Clara, but her recognizing him. Which again, I mentioned Donna in Face the Raven, and here there's a pretty obvious echo. In fact, it's it's actually deliberately, uh, it's actually specifically referenced in dialogue. There's an echo of what happened to Donna, uh, where her memory of the Doctor was wiped. Uh, the Doctor specifically says, I've done it before in regard to, like, wiping a memory. Uh, and we'll do it again, as it turns out. Um, so, um, <laughs> obviously, what ha- what happens there is, in Journey's End, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get to it, but the the scene with the where the Doctor realises he has to wipe Donna's memory and does so is really, a really gutting scene, really kind of heart-wrenching, in which she doesn't want to forget all of it, forget this. Uh, but he does it for her own good and this kind of thing. And there's some troubling gender dynamics going on there, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to it. Here, that's flipped around. Because, as with her dying, this can't be how Clara's story ends. After all that she's done, after all that she has been through with the Doctor, after all we've seen of her, she can't just forget it all. So it's the Doctor who has to forget it all. And we get this really interesting reversal where it's the Doctor who forgets everything and it's Clara who's left with the tragic knowledge. It's Clara who has to see him not recognise her. It's like, again, this I think ties back to the Tenth Doctor a bit to the, like, in the end of time where he's, like, at um, Donna's wedding and has to stand outside being sad. So it's... There's a there's a really interesting reversal of that dynamic. And yet, that doesn't mean that Clara stops being important to the Doctor. Because we still have him kind of looking for her as as his kind of impetus. We still have that like, you know, he says you you can recognize the hole something has left. And he recognizes this is incredibly tragic in itself. He recognizes the hole the Clara-shaped hole in his life, essentially. And he's going to keep on searching for her. But he also knows, because he knows how important she was to him, the effect that she had on him, at least the positive side of it, remains. As in that final um, bit in the TARDIS where he sees written on the blackboard somehow, run, you clever boy, and be a doctor. Again, there is this notion that the, the identity of the doctor is one that has to be assumed. And much like the choice choice making in um, Heaven Sent, has to be chosen over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. He does know it was her at the end though, doesn't he? Because he sees her painted on the side of the TARDIS after her own TARDIS is already dematerialised. 
Because I assume that he maybe made the connection afterwards, and so she was also not leaving him in that suspense Mm. of not knowing. Possibly. But I understand that that's up to interpretation. Yeah, I think it is deliberate enough to be ambiguous, and the painting does, like, flake off when the TARDIS moves. Mm. But yeah, I did promise a sequel to my Heaven Sent story, so I'll finish with that. Because the... I think, like... Some people I was I wasn't really sure about like a lot of people I think I wasn't really sure about Hellbent when I first saw it. And so it didn't make much of an impression on me. But the day after the um the viewing of Heaven Sent that I mentioned last time where it like it really kind of struck a chord with me, I watched Hellbent because that seemed logical. And it was like whatever about the rest of the episode, which I think I've come to appreciate more and more uh with hindsight. Actually, I'd refer you again to an episode of Galactic Yo-Yo, this time with Emma Jones, who like really turned me around on this episode, actually. But the 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 bit that really stood out to me was that bit that I mentioned, that conversation between um, Clara and the Doctor in what becomes Clara's TARDIS. And that notion of, like, again, knowing that you have to let go of something for your own good, but that being incredibly difficult, which... Again, it was that moment of something just speaking directly to me in that moment. And again, I think it's part of why I refer I talk about this being so resonant, so such emotional intelligence, because it registered so much with um, where I was at that point. And now, years later, I come back to that scene and I still find it like deeply moving. Uh, one of again one of the most moving scenes in the whole series but in a much more abstract way this time and i think the fact that it can work on those levels again makes it just a remarkable achievement so there we go that's a potted summary of how i feel about <laughs> hellbent and um, bethan okay so going third some things that I was going to talk about have helpfully already been covered, so I'm going to slide right over those. <laughs> but um, I did want to mention the, uh, as both of you have, in fact, the way that Gallifrey is used, just in kind of the disregard for fan wanky stuff, as Kieran mentioned, but also in a way that a lot of the way it's used seems to be fine tuned to distress a certain kind of fan yeah Um, yeah. the particular example of this that i was thinking of was i think this is the first time that we see a time lord regenerate from one gender into a different gender on screen it is yeah which is obviously setting up the 12th doctor's regeneration but it's just kind of fun to see how the time lords react to it as it being something completely normal that Mm. they all just immediately like Oh, sorry, ma'am. And then, like, they just keep going. Which I feel like... That and, like, just getting rid of reincarnated Rassilon. We don't know why he's back. We don't know... <laughs> we, we don't know how he's off now. And a lot of stuff is just not asked how they do it. Like, uh, the Doctor doesn't tell Clara how they brought her out of her time stream because he's like, it's not important. Mm. <laughs> um, and obviously it is important to her, but that's more for the why than the how. Mm. And then there's a similar... And then how did they get Gallifrey out of the stasis bubble? And the Doctor's like, I didn't ask it would make them feel clever, mm. which I very much enjoyed because 
I I guess this is something that I kind of touched on in our previous, um, not previous episode, but rather previous episodes when we talked about um, Brain of Morbius. Mm. I'm not particularly fussed about the kind of like really granular detail of how Time Lord stuff works or whatever. That's just me. But I was very pleased to either have stuff just be like, yeah, well, it's back, so that's what's happening. Or the expl- the re-explanation of the cloisters when Clara was asking for the Doctor to put it in more simple language, which mm. is, what is it? It's like... It's a computer made of ghosts guarded by other ghosts. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, thanks. I understand ghosts. Um, they're my friends. Um, <laughs> so I enjoyed all of that. But then um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up at this point was me. <laughs> by which I mean a shielder. But Maybe I'm just talking about myself. Who knows? Because I wanted to talk about how there are, to my mind, hints in this and in Face the Raven that she might not have forgotten her time living as a shielder as completely as she claims to have done. And the first reason for this is actually something that I accidentally realised in our previous episode, which is that Odin has ravens. Mm -hmm. And then we get ravens Mm -hmm. in Face the Raven. Odin is referred to in, like, one of the Norse sagas, I think, or possibly just one of the, like, poems as Raven God, as, like, an epithet, which is kind of what the role that Mermi has in, like, in adjudicating life and death on Trap Street. And also, Odin has two ravens, which are called Thought, which are called Hugin, which is Thought, and Munin, which is Memory. Mm. And the whole conflict with me is between the, like, present experience of thought and this, like, past experience that she has accumulated but is impli- but it claims to be losing. Mm. So then the other thing is, in Hellbent, when we see her, she has a chessboard. And the chess mm. pieces, uh, they're actually birds, I think. It was kind of hard to get a good look at them, but obviously there's a kind of raven theme there. But they're chunky in a way that is visually reminiscent of the Lewis chessmen, which are medieval rather than Viking, um, or rather than like that. I, th- I don't think they're from when Norse civilization was thought of as being the Vikings, but one of them is like a berserker. So there is like a, bi- a Viking resonance, a reference to the Nordic sagas, mm. in fact, which is the kind of stories again that Ashilda would have been telling mm. when she was the storyteller. And so there's this idea, I guess, that particularly at this end point for me, these parts of her initial life are maybe still there and so I think there's an idea that maybe this me that she has is also a story a character in the same way that the doctor is but rather than the doctor being one which is about you know never being cruel or cowardly Mies is a fiction of absolute self-interest but maybe Mm. it is just I mean we see places where that fiction kind of breaks down but maybe that's another sort of narrative that she's built about herself. I think we've kind of covered what I would probably have said about how we see more again of the Doctor as a as a story, as a character um, in this episode. So I'll move on to my main point, which is stories and the hybrid, which is interestingly something we haven't really mentioned so mm-hmm. far, which is because, you know, the hybrid is kind of neither here nor there a bit in the end. But... Um, what I wanted to talk about with stories is, i just make sure that I get my correct notes. So, <clears throat> the cloisters 
is like made up of the memories of dead Time Lords that have been uploaded to the Matrix. So theoretically, they could generate prophecies because they've experienced the future as well as the past. However, prophecies kind of sound impressive, but they are vague, and this one is vague. Like, there's the scene mm. where the Doctor's like, all right, but, like, what colour is it? Mm. Like, we're going to need some specifics here. So, prof, and it's even referred to, I think, as a story at one point. as like, a mm. scary story mm. that a child was told in the cloisters. And so, whilst this idea of the hybrid is clearly from the cloisters, whether it's a prophecy as in actually foretelling future events and what those future events whether they're important is kind of up for debate. If it's from the memories of dead Time Lords, it might have already happened, it might be happening and there'd be no way to stop it, or it might just be a, a complete sort of fiction that just comes from some other aspect of their existence. So if we take stories, scary stories, as prophecy, then that's like condemning a repetition in the way that the Doctor would be condemned to repeat, like, mind-wiping Donna and mind-wiping Clara. But we can break it. We can break the cycle, like we saw in the Zygon two-parter, where you break the cycle. And so I think that the whole thing about stories, the whole overall overarching thing that I've been, like, kind of gesturing towards throughout these episodes is that they are shown to be important, like they can give you an identity, like the doctor identity that is about doing what is right and caring and all of this, and they can provide models for behaviour and all sorts of wonderful things, but also they shouldn't control us, and I think that's what's being sort of got at in the way that stories are used in this final concluding episode. The hybrid is kind of what you make of it, and what you can make of it is nothing at all and Clara can go off and do her own thing and they have this obviously they have this toxic relationship this toxic friendship but that might not even be the hybrid but the hybrid is a useful metaphor for that I suppose Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how everything comes together for me in terms of that thread I really like how as you've, as we've all kind of said, how Clara gets to take control over her life again. I think there's a really interesting bit with the duty of care line that uh, you were mentioning, Kieran, as well as the bit where um, he says, "I'm trying to keep you safe," and she says, "Why? Nobody's ever safe." Which I sort of thought was kind of interesting because it felt a bit like a sort of parental thing, mm. or that the Doctor is trying to take this like pseudo parental role because there's been a lot of like ambiguity by contrasting their relationship with other relationships. And questioning, you know, what exactly is going on. And I think that's where we can see that from his side, it's some kind of like protective thing that is kind of inherently a bit patronizing because Clara hasn't asked for it. Mm. And the important thing is that they should be equals, which is why the resolution of them, like both holding the um, the thingy, you know. The thingy. The thingy. The memory thingy. Yeah, is so important because it's about them kind of acknowledging the power dynamic that's been there Hmm. and not allowing it to have any hold over them ultimately. Hmm. Hmm. And yeah, I think that's kind of what I have to say, but this episode is a blast and I loved it. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. I mean, actually something that I forgot to mention about that, about that scene where with the, the scene based around the memory wipe essentially is how it kind of turns on 
as you say, on the kind of the equalness of their relationship and also the kind of the toxicity of their relationship, which again is a really complicated and quite powerful and really interesting notion for a show like this to explore. The notion of two good people be just being bad for each other. And I think it does it so well. But what I find interesting here is the fact that when the doctor is talking to me, not realizing that uh, Clara is listening, he he tells her what he's going to do. He says that he's going to wipe Clara's memory, and me says and he says I've done it before. And me says, "Well, are you going to tell her?" And he says, "Yes, of course I am." Uh, at which point, Clara tries to modify the 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 thing to kind of turn it against him. She reverses the polarity. She reverses the polarity. Of course she does. But what I think is interesting is that like. After this point, when she reveals that she was watching, she like she pushes back against his his right to do that because yeah, he was going to tell her, but he wasn't going to ask, mm-hmm. which is quite an important distinction. And what happens is she pushes back, and the doctor acknowledges that she's right, which I think is a really important thing, not just for her to kind of to on some level triumph and um, for the 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 equalness of their relationship to be acknowledged both by them and in the kind of the framing uh, in several points as we've mentioned but for the doctor to acknowledge actually several times in that scene that he's wrong that like he's gone too far because of her and that he was wrong to even suggest the idea of modifying her memory without her consent and again, part of what is interesting and powerful about the Twelfth Doctor as a moral figure is the fact that he does this, that he is able to admit that he's gone too far, that he's done wrong, and to try and do better. Be a doctor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what that is. Uh, also, I really like the bit when um, he wakes up by the side of the road in Nevada and um, the lad who's there is like, Clara told me you'd have some questions or something. And then he's mm. like, Clara who? Because obviously it's a little mm. riff on Doctor Who, but isn't that like a disparaging name that people used to call the program when yes, Clara it is. was on it? Roundabout Series 8, yeah. yeah. And I don't know if that's... I don't know if Stephen Moffat knew about that when he was writing those lines, but it's just kind of extra, like, fun, but also mm. kind of in your face about, like, yeah... Clara's important. Why wouldn't she be important? She's got her own TARDIS now and a companion. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's the fact that, that that line comes minutes, if even that, before she goes off in her TARDIS with her companion. Mm. And we're even pointedly shown at the very end of the episode her TARDIS going one way and the Doctor's going another. As if to just really hammer that point home mm. for the people in the back. I think this is also a story that is about populism, really. I mean, like, we've kind of talked about, or I've kind of talked about the friend-enemy distinction that runs throughout this season, well, gets deconstructed throughout this season. And I I spoke in the first part on, when we were talking about the Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, about, you know, the way in which the Daleks are used to kind of reference the alt-right and so on, and... And you know, kind of smits the distinction between friend and enemy, but also Leclerc and uh, Moof's work on on populism from a more left perspective. And I think the interesting thing about this episode is, as I was saying earlier, you have that 
literal separation and exclusion within Gallifreyan society, where you have obviously these the elite the elite time lords inside the dome, and then you have the the people outside. To me, it just it just screams like people versus the elite. You have the time lords in these resplendent robes and ridiculous mm. like like or like head dresses and things, and then you have those people who are very like dressed down, you know, out in the wilderness, and who were told, you know, don't matter by Rassilon, apparently, and. I think it was interesting what you were saying about that, that that cut dialogue, you know, with the suggestion that the Doctor's presidency is turning out to be very similar to a lot of the others, and he's really elite. And I think there's definitely something in that in relation to this populism idea, because I mean, really, as I was saying in the first part, populism sets up this this division within society rhetorically and discursively in order to construct a notion of the people because in order to say what the people are you have to exclude groups to you know to define what the people are um and that's exactly what goes on here the doctor literally kicks the president off the planet then he says that the high council will be the next on you know uh on the next shuttle but it's all it's all really performative you know like there's a great book by Benjamin Moffat on populism kind of as a style and the idea of um a lot of populist politicians will kind of you know perform their opposition to establishment politics um Mm. so they'll they'll say things that are controversial or they'll they'll speak in a way that is not kind of proper like parliamentary language or whatever and that's exactly what happens with the doctor here you Mm. know he there's the whole drawing the line in the sand facing down the 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 huge spaceship. There's the ignoring the the high council and the general who all turn up until Rasenov finally arrives. All of that stuff. And in the end, there's no difference, you know. Because I think some people would define it as a revolution, you know, the idea that the doctor gets the gets the military figures on his side and mm. then takes over the presidency. But it's not at all. It's just uh it's just him he'd taken over the presidency and there's a sense of a, a political representational state as always partial and as always excluding others and we've just gone from an exclusion of those people you know the outsiders at the barn to an exclusion of the high council and so on and i think it's a it's a very interesting and nuanced take on that stuff because i feel like what it's really saying is it's not saying what i think will find it when I get to this but what I think the Chibnall era is saying which is essentially like you know populist politics is irrational or based on feeling and what we really need are you know technocrats and um, you know responsible experts to, to deal with things what it's really saying is this kind of politics may be misguided but it's an outcome of deep inequality and deep exclusion in society mm. and I think the episode does a it's not necessarily doing it consciously, but I think it is definitely there is something there, and I think it deals with it in a really interesting way. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's really interesting, and I think the episode doesn't just do that kind of in terms of execute that kind of thing in terms of representation or in terms of the events of the plot. 
Mm-hmm. It also it's doing something with our sympathies. Mm-hmm. Because all of that early stuff that you talk about, the the drawing of the line, the facing down of all of these uh, elite figures, these are clearly like kind of punch the air moments of like, yeah, the doctor is facing down authority like like they've done so many times before. This is great. But it slowly twists around until we realize that like it, it is kind of a for some reason the first thing that comes to my mind is animal farm it's a vaguely animal farm mm. thing of like he's already become what he was on some, on some level really against or perhaps he always was that on some level as well i actually found myself um thinking during this episode and like thinking about it thinking of the there's the line in a good man goes to war the sort of vague prophecy thing that river makes where she says something along the lines of i forgot to look it up but it's something along the lines of um he'll rise higher than ever before and then fall so much further and that line always felt weird to me in in a good man goes to war because i don't think either of those things really happen in that episode like he yes he is victorious and then has a great and uh, disappointment but like i don't think either of those things re- are really the most pivotal that have ever happened to him. I think this episode fits that actually somewhat better. He does rise higher than ever before in an almost literal sense of being a top Time Lord society. But in doing so, he is falling short of his his own principles, of his own sense of himself. And I mean, I like A Good Man Goes to War by some margin the best of the three of us, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but I still think this is a much, much better version of the kind of, uh, I know Elizabeth Sandford calls it narrative substitution that that episode is doing, where it seems to be doing one story and then turns out to be about something completely different. And I think that kind of, um, what you were saying, Jacob, about the the almost exposure, I suppose, of populist politics is a big part of that. The, the audience is kind of deliberately being swept along mm-hmm. in that kind of swell swell of support, I suppose, in order to more fully appreciate where it, where it leads and what it does and how it's achieving these things. And I think that's inordinately clever writing. Yeah. Whether or not it's deliberate, I don't really care because mm-hmm. the effect is the same either way. Yeah. Oh, one other thing I do want to mention while we're on a vaguely related note, actually, is the... Uh, I love the image of the Dalek in the down in the cloisters, the sort of trapped Dalek saying exterminate me over and over again. Because there is this notion already when we're in the, the cloisters that we're in the kind of the seedy underbelly of Gallifrey, the kind of the underpinnings of Time Lord rule. And it turns out to be an incredibly dangerous place, policed by ghosts. And it turns out to be a place where things get like even things like Daleks get trapped in torment as if the society is literally built on torment Mm -hmm. which is quite a pleasing sort of notion just in a in a very literal sense I suppose not because torment is good no (laughs) (laughs) to be clear about that no I don't think I could ever forget you Oh, I don't think you're ever going to have to. Now 
hell. What? Run like hell because you always need to. Laugh at everything. Because it's always funny. No, stop it. You're saying goodbye. Don't say goodbye. Never be cruel. And never be cowardly. And if you ever are, always make amends. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Never eat pears. They're too squishy. And they always make your chin wet. That one is quite important. Write it down. I didn't mean to do this. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I went too far. I broke all my own rules. I became the hybrid. This is right. I accept it. I can't. There has to be something I can do. Smile for me. Go on. Clara's world. is gone we've, we've run hell bent dry for now at least so now it's time to move on to the rankings i mean i'm gonna preface mine by saying as we've been saying all along this is such a good series and i mean i'll repeat this several times i'm sure as i'm going through my rankings but like this is not a normal ranking in terms of how good each individual story is and mm-hmm. uh, this is very re- much relative to each other by the time I get to number five on my list, I'm at like something that could easily be the best story in another season. So with that out of the way, at the very bottom of my list, number nine, pleasingly enough, is Sleep No More, which is better than fine in some respects. <laughs> I think is a really interesting, is playing with really interesting ideas. But just not quite there at some level. I don't. Maybe it needed some more drafts or something. It's hard to say. But there's a there's a real messiness to it. I I'm aware that I just described Hellbent. Well, Forty minutes ago, I described Hellbent as messy as well. But I think Sleep No More just isn't quite sort of hitting its marks. Which is also something I said about when we got to it about number eight on my list, which is the woman who lived. Which again, I think has interesting stuff going on. I think, you know, is very right to devote a lot of time and attention to that central dynamic between the Doctor and Lady Me as she is at that point. But the the plot stuff, the big scary line from space, doesn't really work for me and I don't think, doesn't feel like it should be part of the same episode. Now, number seven, I've got Under the Lake Before the Flood, which I think I'm slightly less fond of than both of you, but I do really like uh, again, I should emphasize it's only this low because this is such a good series. Uh, I think it's a it's a really clever story. It's got like some interesting dynamics going on in terms of the usual structure of a base under siege and that kind of stuff. Number six is The Magician's Apprentice, The Witch's Familiar, which is another really, really clever story. One of the best season openers, easily, with really interesting stuff to say about... All of the kinds of things we talked about, of like the friend-enemy distinction, of like alt-right Daleks, and it's got Missy in it. So it's automatically elevated quite a bit in my affections. Mm. And number five, and I can't believe it's this low, is The Girl Who Died, which I described as like a classic, and I stand by that. I think it's a 
brilliant episode. Really clever. Really funny, actually. And, again, playing with a lot of interesting ideas. Number four, I've got the Zygon Invasion and Zygon Inversion, which is, again, a superb story. Really, really clever. I'm just, I'm just repeating superlatives a lot for this series. Got some really clever, kind of overtly political text really going on. As, as, as a story with a lot to say. Both, I think, in an immediate political environment, but also on a wider and more universal level about ethics and the notions of others and of hybridity and things like that. Then, <laughs> number three, it's Face the Raven, which is a marvellous story with, like, one of the most simple and beautifully straightforward and brilliant conceits for a Doctor Who story ever, I think, with so, so much going on. And that's even before we get to the incredibly emotionally fraught scenes of Clara's death, which are beautifully executed. Which brings me on to number two, which is Hellbent, of course, obviously. Which is an episode I've just spent, we've all just spent a long time talking about, so I'm sure I don't have to reiterate why and how it's so brilliant. But it's extraordinary, and I don't imagine I'll ever see another Doctor Who episode quite like Hellbent. And well, that's not necessarily a source of regret, because that's kind of how it should be, I think. It is a very singular episode in a lot of ways. And obviously number one is Heaven Sent, which is, like, how can I say any more about Heaven Sent? It is extraordinary, it is a masterpiece, it is one of the cleverest and most emotionally resonant uh, pieces of television I have ever seen. I would almost go so far as to say pieces of art I have ever seen. And bringing that level of cleverness and that level of emotional resonance together, I think, is an extraordinary feat. And while all of the people involved obviously deserve to be commended, I think obviously particular plaudits uh, should go to Stephen Moffat, Peter Capaldi and Rachel Talalay, who presumably do the best work of their career here. And I would be astonished if, though I suppose not that surprised, if any of them were ever to better it. So, Bethan. Okay, so... In the bottom place, I have also got Sleep No More. I appreciate the idea of doing a found footage Doctor Who story. I think it's something that it makes sense to try. However, I found it hard to watch. Just on like a purely visual level, Mm -hmm. I was struggling. So it was kind of flawed but interesting is how I would describe it. Mm. Then at number, what is this, eight... Um, I also I have The Woman Who Lived. It's a good episode in a really good series, which is why it's so low. The eyebrows in that story, incredible. Like, wow. <laughs> Did the lion have eyebrows? I can't remember. I was too busy looking at Peter Capaldi and Maisie Williams' eyebrows. They're amazing. Maybe so, that's the problem with the lion. It just... He's he, not distinctive eyebrows. Hmm. Zero out of ten for the lion's eyebrows. So then next, uh, number seven, I have Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, which I really like. I think normally the opening episodes of series rank a lot higher than this for me, but I think it's a sign of how strong the series is that um, it manages to sort of carry that momentum all the way through and it doesn't just kind of come in bursts 
um, at the beginning and then mm. maybe at the end. But, you know, Missy, always a joy to watch. And then, Kieran, you were correct that um, I like Under the Lake Before the Flood more than you do because it's next. But that is the only difference in our rankings. <laughs> I will spoil this for you now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's good and interesting. At number five, I have The Girl Who Died. Um, I find it quite emotionally affecting, although I don't think it's a perfect episode. And I think it's a good example of a historical episode that has some fun with the era, but doesn't fall into sort of lazy category, lazy broad categorizations in an uncomplicated way. Um, at number four, obviously, it's the Zygon two-parter. It's really good. Uh, Jenna Coleman is extraordinary. Yeah. And I do find the scenes with the Osgood box to be really interesting and emotional um, even with some of the caveats that we talked about in the actual, in our episode on that. And so, I think we had some discussion at one point about whether we were going to treat these as separate episodes or as, mm. like, a combined one, but it turns out it wouldn't actually have mattered <laughs> because the three top spots are, well, what you'd expect. But number three, Face the Raven. Um, I think the reason why this ranked above the Zygon two-parter was just because in the Zygon two-parter, there are things that I think work less well, as well as things that are really strong. Whereas in Face the Raven, I honestly don't think that there is a single thing that I would change. I, I, I think that for what it is, it does everything sort of perfectly. I, I really like it. There's some really strong performances, and it gets so much done in the time <laughs> that it has, and so effortlessly. Number two, Hellbent. Obviously, it's great. I actually don't think it's quite as, like, messy as 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 Kieran was describing it, for me it like flowed, but that might just be because I was all aboard the the mess express. <laughs> I was like, I was with it, I was there, and so then in number one, of course, Heaven Sense. It was it is incredible. I cry every time, and not in a shallow emotionality kind of way, in a like, wow emotions, but also depth kind of way. You know, I can't really describe it, but. That's just, I'm lost for words. Mm -hmm. So, Jacob? Okay. In last place, I have Heaven Sent. No. (laughs) 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 There would have just been just a sudden reversal. There would have just been a deluge of comments when we posted this, if that was true. (laughs) Having, Having thought about it and discussed it for... 35 minutes or whatever it was I've suddenly realised it's no good (laughs) (laughs) No I have not surprisingly Sleep No More in last place (laughs) I will say now as, As you've already said This is an extremely strong season And stuff that is low down the rankings In this is not bad it's just, mm. it, it's kind of what would be average to good in most series, I think. And this is kind of, mm. for me, Sleep No More is just kind of fine, surprisingly. He, he, uh, I appreciate what it's trying to do. I think it's trying to experiment with, with form. It mm. it doesn't really work. It doesn't come together, I don't think. But yeah, like uh, it is trying to do something interesting. And yeah, kind of fails in the execution, but... And then next, I have the woman who lived. There, are, like this is above sleep no more because I think there are moments in this that I really like. I think there are, like I was saying in the last episode, there's some 
really fantastic bits of dialogue with real emotional resonance and intelligence but i just mm. the whole thing doesn't come together for me like you were saying that the the lion alien just feels kind of superfluous and my big problem with this story is just there's such a missed opportunity here with with the the setting and the time period and it it could have been used so effectively to to advance those central themes and nothing's really it's just the backdrop and i think in a series that has been so good at threading themes throughout it's a real shame but there is still good stuff in it and then just above that i have the girl who died so at number seven i think Again, this is an episode that has moments that I really, really like. For me, I still find it tonally uneven somewhat, but I think it does handle the tone shifts a lot better than The Woman Who Lived. And I think Capaldi's performance is fantastic, as always. And, uh, yeah, particularly that moment with the, you know, where he says he's sick of losing people, that's just great. That's one of my best my favourite moments with his doctor, I think. And then, just above that, number six, I have The Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar. A really strong season opener. I'm less keen on the first part, with the whole, like, Russell T. Davies-esque montage of planes <sighs> stopping in the sky. But, yeah, I, th- I think it does, it comes together, it, it sets up the central themes of this series really, really well. Again, it's got a, a real emotional intelligence to it. And it's also setting up, particularly with Missy, it's setting up things that will happen in series 10. Um, so yeah, really good two-parter which opens the series and does a lot of really good work. And then at number five, I have the Zygon Invasion, the Zygon Inversion. This for me, I was trying to decide where to put this. And for me, it just edged out the Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, because um, I think there's that wonderful speech at the end, uh, which again is just a brilliant performance by Capaldi. Jenna Coleman, as you were saying, is fantastic, playing both the villain and and Clara as well, and it's tackling really important issues in I think quite a sharp way. And then number four, I have. Under the Lake Before the Flood. I think this is a really intelligent episode. I think it's really intelligently plotted. Meshes nicely with the central themes of the series. And I think, above all, it's not just kind of about narrative kind of cleverness and trickiness, but there is, you know, there are like strong characters within it, but it is not as good as the top three, um, Mm. which... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It it can't possibly be number three, which is Face the Raven, which yeah, as we've said, it's just it's just a fantastic episode. It does a lot of work really effectively and with a real emotional punch. They need to get Sarah Dollard back uh, mm. to write another episode, or multiple episodes, because it's great. Number two, I have Hellbent. I mean, I won't go on too much because I went on for a very long time. But yeah, it's exceptional. In most of the series, it would be... In fact, probably in any other series, it would be top. But number one is Heaven Sent because it's just... Yeah, it's just one of the finest pieces of television I have ever watched 
for all the reasons that I already stated. It's Capaldi's best performance in this series. I imagine it's going to be Capaldi's best performance in his career, probably. Yeah, it's it's just fantastic. It's emotionally, you know, emotionally intelligent. It's has such a kind of thematic depth and richness to it, and it's just extraordinary the way, you know, Capaldi kind of does a masterclass really in how to carry an episode by yourself. Mm. Uh, yeah, really, really fantastic, and it's just a great season overall. Yeah, well, clearly, <laughs> I'm. I've slightly held off on say on saying this, and uh, just because I thought now was probably the best time to say before. But series nine is my favorite episode of or my favorite series of the new series. But I think it is the most consistent, which is a rare thing in in Doctor Who. I think it's pretty rare to find an episode with, or it's just, why do I keep saying that? A series with no bad episodes mm-hmm. i don't think series 10 has a bad episode either and i'm not sure i would say series 8 does either but uh although they definitely both definitely have some lesser episodes yeah. and like the level of as we've said almost ad infinitum uh in these episodes which shows us how good it is the level of thematic coherence here mm-hmm. the the ways in which the episodes build on each other and like reinforcing one another and um, are in dialogue with each other it's really quite remarkable Mm -hmm. and like as I was kind of saying with Hellbent it goes to places that I emotionally speaking that I never would have imagined Doctor Who possibly could and does so manages to speak to those kinds of things with real depth real intelligence and real deftness I think and I think the, the kind of the thematic coherence of this season I think it's striking to look at it in comparison to the kind of approach Russell T Davies took to season arcs and themes because I think it's much more skillful and subtle to to have these multiple themes kind of all going off at once rather than like a kind of and you know that keep kind of resurfacing and are threaded throughout rather than the repetition of like a phrase which I think is kind of a lot of... I'm not saying that's all of it, but that's a lot of the way in which I think Davies used to kind of run season arcs and themes, really. Yeah, I was going to say something similar, actually, in terms of, like, um, I don't know that in all of our looks at different series and seasons going forward that I will have such a a, a concrete take on what I think this that the episodes are saying as I have had this time. But I feel like in a way this is kind of a series that demands that kind of overarching take in a mm. way that a lot of other ones it would feel like I was kind of forcing it. Whereas I feel like, yeah, as Jacob you were saying, the thematic consistency is is such that you kind of have to take episodes into account in relation to each other to understand mm. them separately or to get a better view of them separately even though they might work well individually as well and yeah I think I I really like how because you do kind of in a way there's kind of the ghost of those like single word arcs in the term hybrid as it appears throughout the episodes but it's executed in such a different way and in a way Mm. that I really enjoy I enjoy the fact that it is set up as if it's going to be this big kind of like sci-fi 
moment of a hybrid a la Dalek sec in mm. Daleks of Manhattan or something mm. that I'm sure we all remember with fondness. Mm. Mm. But it's actually the whole, it's then completely subverted. Yeah. And I just feel like this might be the most successful resolution of a mm. of a series with the whole kind of arc that we've seen in in Doctor Who just because we don't tend to get these really satisfying long series arcs which I don't think it necessarily always needs but I think that this is really like the peak of what that could be I guess on that the kind of the I think one of the reasons the hybrid mystery works certainly to my mind works a lot better than some of the other sort of mysteries we've had threaded throughout the series, actually basically all of them, is that whereas, for instance, you will ultimately you find out what Torchwood is, who Mr. Saxon is, and yes, he's exactly who you thought he was. Who, the right man for the job. Mm, uh, what Bad Wolf, well, sort of find out what Bad Wolf is. I'm still not totally clear what Bad Wolf is. But here... The hybrid is left ambiguous, which is significant because it means that when you return to the series, you find yourself still questioning, well, what is the hybrid? Mm -hmm. And what's more, that concept, as we have seen, of hybridity is informing all of these episodes. And so that mystery really builds those episodes up on a thematic level, as well as kind of just being this kind of almost externally imposed plot concern. And I think that that helps a lot. Now, for all that I've said, it's a, it's a mystery with an ambiguous resolution. I also think part of the strength of it is that of the couple of answers that are proffered, you can take any of them and and they will be perfectly satisfying in themselves. Like, yeah, it probably is the Doctor and Clara's relationship. Or maybe it is the Doctor himself. Or maybe it is me. Or maybe... It, Maybe it is Clara, for that matter. And all of those are fairly satisfying answers in themselves. But I think the the strength of it is also that multiple answers can coexist simultaneously. Mm. It's Time Lord bullshit. Mm. All the way down. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm also thinking of some of the, the other sort of series-long mysteries that we've had. I mean, there's the mystery of who River Song is, which resolved mid-season mm. interestingly enough and why clara keeps yeah re-existing the one that i keep thinking of and i'm not sure how i think about it i'll be interested when we come back to it is um missy in series eight mm. when she keeps turning up and um, without any explanation of who she is and that's an interesting one in that it has a definite resolution which i actually find very satisfying but that's partly just because i really like missy let's be honest I think I... Anyway, I won't talk about that now because yeah. we should talk about that when we get to it, but yeah. I don't know. Is there is there much else to say about this series as a whole or have we said it all? Could we possibly have said it all? I don't think we've said it all, but equally, I don't know what else I have to meaningfully offer. Hmm. It's really good. Mm. Watch it. Really good. <laughs> Like, I I mean, I was looking forward to coming back to it, and I already had it in my head that it was my favourite series, but, like, yeah, rewatching it, there's nothing else mm. really quite compares. It's funny, because um, the classic series kind of went out on a high with series uh, season 26, mm. which I think is 
probably my favorite classic season and has I actually think has a similar level of consistency but as much as I love season 26 this is even more sophisticated in the way that it threads themes throughout mm. and has this kind of seemingly central arc that pays off in a narratively satisfying manner but one that also rewards a lot more attention and yeah it's great so I guess we can after by some margin our longest episode to date I think we can finally round things off I just wanted to say I'd like to thank bisexual Jesus Clara Oswald for dying for the fandom's sins and you can choose whether to keep that in the episode or not I don't mind there is no way I'm coming down out of the episode <laughs> so we will be back I believe our next episode will be a sort of one of our sort of miscellaneous episodes uh, in which we will be talking about historicals historical episodes as a as a whole mm-hmm. uh, what we think of them different types of them and also maybe some historical periods that we'd like to see visited and how that might be done uh, sort of actually in line with what uh, Jacob was saying about the woman who lived and so between now and then you can rate and review us on your podcast provider of choice on on Apple Podcasts on uh, Spotify and SoundCloud come and leave us a like or a comment or both you can find us on Twitter at Lots Planets Pod, where you will also find our individual Twitters, uh, and in doing so, you will also be able to find the Drill to Who style tweet that um, <laughs> Bethan has made for Hellbent, which is a glorious image in itself. Mm. Uh, you can email us at uh, lotsofplanetspod at gmail.com should you desire. But otherwise, I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon.